right. Uh, people talk a lot. They turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we've already read it um, as our New Testament text. Um, people talk a lot today. You hear a lot of conversations and people mention that we live in a time of great excess. Um, but we also live in a time of great access. Um, we have access to more information than we've ever had before. We have it immediately at a touch of a button. Uh, we have access to local and national and world events in real time, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have access to products and services uh, that, you, that, that we can purchase and possess and sometimes receive within 24 hours from the comfort of our own home. Um, we're, we're so accustomed to that access that companies make thousands if not millions of dollars every year by creating subscriptions um, to, to those particular products and services. You're like me. You probably have, um, well, there are basic plans, intermediate plans, and, but there are also premium and all-access plans. And so you, like me, you may have Spotify Premium. Right, or you may have CBS All Access or PBS Passport, uh, and, and through those things, we're given extended access to to articles and to songs. And, and you and I have also we've read we've been reading articles online, and we come to the end, or not even to the end, but maybe the first or second paragraph, and it and it starts to get a little fuzzy or dim, and then there's this little button that says for you know to read the full article, subscribe now. Right? And what they want you to do is have full access. And we get frustrated because that access has been limited. It's been limited by that company. Um, so what we do is we pay with the subscription and we make that contribution of some kind and because we want that access to all the archives and all the extra songs. And we, we, don't, we don't like to have that access limited. And that's one of the things that we're really experiencing right now that's, that, that's bothersome. Is because with the stay-at-home recommendations and the social distance guidelines, we're not only we're seeing, we're feeling, but we're also seeing an escalation in the emotions that people have because they've been restricted and they've had limited access to people and to places, and and there's been this limited accessibility to particular things that uh, that we're all used to and sometimes take for granted. And in the midst of this, in the midst of that idea. It, it, at the right time, and you're not going to be surprised when I say, right now, this is the perfect passage for this particular time. Hebrews 9 verses 1 to 10, because it speaks of access and it speaks of accessibility, spiritually speaking, of course. It's, it's a passage in which the writer announces that the time of reformation has come. And with that time of reformation that has come, we have unlimited access to God through the Lord Jesus. And... He does so by doing three things. He's going to describe the tabernacle. He's going to explain uh, the priesthood. And then he's going to share uh, the indication from the Spirit. So that's our outline. We're going to look at the description of the tabernacle, the, the explanation of the priesthood, and the indication by the Spirit. Okay, let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, would you in these moments encourage us from your word? Point us to and help us to rest in Jesus through whom you have granted us total, complete, unlimited access to yourself. Would you during this brief, brief time tonight assure us of our Savior, mediator, and priest and the access he has secured for us 
and give us a Give us confidence to approach your throne of grace that we might experience that full and unrestricted fellowship that you desire with us. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at, first, let's look at this description of the tabernacle. Uh, The writer begins in verses 1 through 5 with that description. And you'll remember from our study of Leviticus and what we just read from Leviticus 16 that God instructed Moses well, back at our beginning of our study of Leviticus, that God instructed Moses to tell the people that they were to build a tabernacle. And it was called both the, ten of, uh, the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. And the purpose for that tabernacle and tent of meeting was so that he may dwell in their midst. And you'll also remember that the, the two words were used interchangeably, but they, mean, they meant something different. Tabernacle was used to refer to a place where God dwells, and tent of meeting was used to refer to that divine, where the divine and the human would meet together in fellowship. And over and over, I I read this quote during that study last fall, but Michael Morales said that the tabernacle was not only God's house, but the place of his presence. It was the ordained way, it, it was the place of his presence, but it was also the ordained way of approaching his divine presence, right? So it was both. And in these five verses, uh, we get a brief description of the tabernacle. Uh, One large tent with a courtyard in front, but inside that large tent there were two sections. Uh, The first section was called the holy place, and it contained the lampstand, the table of the bread of the presence, and the altar of incense. And, And I know here in our passage that the author puts the altar of incense within the holy of holies, but, and there's some discussion about that, but kind of the I think it's because of, of the need of the incense and the use of the incense within the Holy of Holies that he places it there, uh, but we do know that it was outside in that first, in that first section. The, the second section was smaller uh, of the two, and that, that inner section was called the most holy place. Okay? And that, that most holy place, it was separated from the larger section by a large curtain, and then within that section was the Ark of the Covenant, and within the Ark of the Covenant were the two, two stone tablets of the law, Aaron's uh, rod uh, or staff, and an urn full of manna. And then, of course, on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat with the two cherubim flanking on either, either side, and it was there that God said that he would, in fact, meet with his people. Now, fortunately for us, we took, again, the time in our study of Leviticus. We we walked through each of those things and why they were used and and why it all pointed to Jesus. So, in verse 5, when the writer says, Of these things uh, we cannot now speak in detail, I can say I can't either. (laughs) Because the author has a particular point that he's driving home in this, and we can tell that by how he's introducing it. And that point is the same point that I want to make as well. So we're going to leave that explanation as it is. We're going to rest in our study of Leviticus. And we're going to move on as the writer, in fact, does. And what he does then is he moves on to the explanation of the priesthood in verses 6 and 7. And again, our background of Leviticus and even our uh, reading of Leviticus 16 just moments ago, we know that the priests had um, responsibilities of receiving and preparing and offering the sacrifices on the altar of burnt offering in the courtyard. 
And they were also responsible to go into the holy place, and they were to keep the incense, uh, keep that burning, and, and they were also to keep the lampstand burning. They did that both night and day, or morning and evening. And then they would also go in once a week and change out the bread that was that was on the table, right? And they would take that out, and that they would eat some, and they would replace it with with new bread. But they were not allowed to go into the most holy place. The most holy place was re- reserved for the great high priest. But the great high priest, even though he could enter, was only allowed to enter once a year. And only after, uh, on the Day of Atonement that we just read about, and he could only do that after he took a bath and changed his clothes. And if he took the blood of the bull and the goat for Azazel in with him to to, to put upon um, the mercy seat and to sprinkle uh, at, at, uh, at the altar there. And he was doing that for his own sins and for the sins of the people. Um, And just like the description of the tabernacle, this explanation of the priesthood is very brief, not simply because that they would have been familiar with it, but because he's moving on to another point. Uh, And that's one of the reasons we read the entire chapter of 16 prior to doing this, that we would have that refresher because we've studied it. So we've got that refresher. We understand we have the picture in our mind of what it was that he's explaining. And that brings us to the indication by the Spirit. Okay? Look at verse 8 again. I'm going to read verses 8 to 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot per- perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. As he's done on a couple of occasions, the writer acknowledges that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires the sacred text of Scripture. But he seems to be taking this to a step further, to another level, and says that the Spirit hasn't just spoken in the past through the Scripture about these things, but he is at the present time pointing out and declaring and making something very clear about about this. And the the point he's making is that the mere presence of the division within the tabernacle, and even then, presently, it would have been the temple, but the mere presence of the division, the mere presence of the the holy place, that first larger section, um, shows, exhibits, uh, lets them know that access to God through the old covenant was barred or limited. God had instructed, again, had instructed his people to build the tabernacle so that he might dwell in their midst and to meet with them. And yet the structure itself and the system that was implemented for that all to take place was a perpetual reminder that the meeting with and the fellowship with him was limited. It wasn't it wasn't full and complete. The people were to remain. The people remained in the courtyard. Only the priests could come into the holy place, but only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and then only once a year. The curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was this constant reminder that the people did not dwell in the direct presence with or have direct fellowship with the Lord. And that direct presence and direct fellowship was limited because the system 
uh, was externally and not internally focused. The, the food and the drink and the washings and the sacrifices did not because they could not perfect the conscience. In other words, they could not eliminate the internal guilt that people both inherited and earned that weighed upon their consciences. The fact that the high priest could only enter into the most holy place with blood for the purpose of covering his sin and the sins of the people and that it happened every year was this constant reminder that the complete cleansing and forgiveness that he needed and they needed was not taking place. Because if it had been, if it was full and final and complete, if full access had been granted, they wouldn't have had to do that year after year after year. He knew that the bath that he took and the clothes that he put on to look holy didn't work. Right? It was, it was all external. He knew... Um, he knew that bath and the clothes that he put on and the incense that he burned and the blood that he brought in did not wash away the sin. It did not wash away the guilt of that sin for his own or for the people. He knew he had, he knew, he knew, and many of the people knew they needed a new heart. They needed a new conscience that those things did not provide. But the Holy Spirit also indicated that there had been a time of reformation. There there was a time of reformation. It had come. At the right, critical, exact, opportune time, Christ died for sinners. He made things straight. He made them perfect. He put an end to the old covenant and all its imperfections and shortcomings due to the sin of men and ushered in a new eternal covenant through His blood. Upon his death on the cross, that, if you remember in the Gospels, when, when he died, that curtain ripped in two from top to bottom. And when that curtain ripped in two, it symbolized, it, it, it ended. It was, a, it was a way, an illustration, it was a way for God to show the people that limited access and indirect fellowship to God was now over. And upon his ascension... He took his own blood as a great high priest, as our great high priest. He took his own blood into the most holy place, not made with hands, into heaven, into the presence of the Father. And his blood not only washes away our sin, but it perfects our conscience, washing away the stain of our guilt as well. He did not offer it for himself. He did not need to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. The offering was for us, for His people, and it took care of our sin and the guilt that laid upon our conscience. It's a, it's a, his blood provides a thorough and complete cleansing that makes unlimited access to the Father possible. Just as God promised, He now gives His people a new heart and a clean conscience that we need for that unlimited access that we may dwell with Him and fellowship with Him directly and intimately forever. Now, there are three things. I, I normally ask, you know, what is, what is one takeaway? I'm going to give you three, okay? Three takeaways from tonight. First, the writer is not in any way, and, I, and I'm bringing this up because I hear this, 
I've heard it in the past anyway, but the writer is not in any way suggesting that there are two levels or stages to the Christian life, as some people suggest. There are some out there who will use this passage to say that there are two degrees of nearness to God. You can be in the outer, you know, in the, in the holy place, or you can really be spiritual and be in the most holy place. And so there's this idea of you can be really spiritual or not so spiritual, but the, but the writer, and, and, really, and sometimes we hear that in terms of being spiritual, being a Christian, being a carnal Christian, and, but the writer's not doing that at all. Okay? The writer is not creating degrees of our spirituality. The, the author is very straightforwardly telling the readers that those trusting in the old system, in the old covenant, living under the old covenant, remain in their sin and are lost because they're trusting in their own work. And those who have turned to faith in Christ and who are trusting in and resting in His work on their behalf, in His blood and His righteousness, and living under the new covenant, have been cleansed from their sin and their guilt from their sin, and they're saved. He's expressing that there are Christians and non-Christians, not multiple degrees of Christian. And this is important because, again, as I said, many people have bought into that. They bought into this two-level idea, and they're weighed down. They live hunched over, spiritually speaking, weighed down because they're, the, the, the idea in their head is that they are struggling with sin that seem, and, and, they're, and they're, they're upset because their spiritual life is more of a two steps forward, one step back, and they never seem to gain any ground. And so they must be on this lower level as far as their spirituality is concerned and, and somehow that they're second class Christians. And as a result, they're weary and heavy laden because they're trying all that they can possibly do to move into this so-called higher level. And that somehow, if they can just do enough, that that struggle is going to end and they can truly be spiritual. And others are exerting a great deal of energy and time and effort to prove to themselves and to others that they are already in that second level. They are already in that, you know, they are nearer to God than other people. And by the way, this is really going to get ramped up. We've been talking about, about this in several conversations. This is really going to get ramped up over the next few weeks and throughout the summer, right? There's going to be a lot of virtue signaling. There's going to be a lot of gaslighting, a lot of putting forward that if you will just do this and do that, and if you're on this side or that side, then you're the real spiritual ones. And brothers and sisters, we have to push back against that, right? We've got to remember the ladies were in Romans 14 this week. We've got to remember in Romans 14 of the importance of those gray areas in, in terms of um, you know, coming up and, and determining our own convictions in those gray areas, allowing other people to determine their convictions in that, setting aside our freedom where necessary for, the, for uh, you know, love of God, love of neighbor. Um, but we, we can't get into this you know, super spirituality uh, and different levels of, of spirituality when it comes to doing things outside of God's Word according to man's traditions. So it's, it's really going to get obnoxious, I'm just tell, telling you. <laughs> it's going to get real obnoxious and we've got to fight against that. So please hear me. It, it, but there are some, if you are struggling in that, if that's something that you've grown up hearing, if that's something that you even find yourself um, wrestling with and, and you're and you're really you just bought into that for some reason. I, I, I want you to hear 
that you do not have to work for your, for your way behind the curtain into a richer, fuller spiritual life. The curtain has been torn and removed. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who repents of their sin and turns to faith in Christ, trusting Him alone for their salvation, has full, complete, unlimited, total access to God through Him. Period. And as Richard Phillips says, he says, you know, in fact, really, we're all carnal Christians because carnal means fleshly. So we're all in this battle between in the flesh and in the spirit. And so instead of seeking this higher spiritual plateau, he says, our calling is simply to grow in grace as we learn more and more to trust and love the Lord our God. Right? That's what we're doing. So second, that's first. That first takeaway. Second, remember, remember at the time of the writing, the temple was in place um, and had taken place of the tabernacle. And, and within the ten, temple, again, that, that curtain remained. Right? Curtain tore in two. What did the priests do? Well, you know, they put it back up. They didn't rush inside because they were excited they had access to God. They, they maybe sewed it back up or made a new one and they put it back up. And so at the temple at the time, it, it remained. And, and the present language, the present tense language, I think kind of shows us that this is prior to uh, the temple being destroyed at the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. But anyway, uh, if we're honest, we, we do the same thing, metaphorically speaking, Right? We do the same thing. Rather than live in the reality that we have unlimited access to God, we allow Satan to accuse us. Rather than live in the reality of our unlimited access, we give in to our flesh and allow our minds to condemn us despite the fact that our sin and our guilt has been washed away and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we keep putting that curtain back up as if we don't have access. But the reality is that we can now approach the throne of grace in reverence and boldness, with confidence, because Christ has once for all, through His sacrifice, that was sufficient, He has made that unlimited access possible. And He is even now interceding on our behalf at the throne of grace, at the right hand of the Father. And so just as the writer is encouraging his readers May, may I encourage you, may He encourage us today. Let us not revert back to any sort of works-based righteousness in which we attempt to enter into His presence or earn His favor and pay back the price that was paid for our salvation by our good works. Let's not erect or attempt to live by and force others to live by some man-made traditions to earn uh, salvation or to gain the Father's approval. We have been given all we need. We have a new heart. Right? Our conscience has been washed clean. He's forgiven us of our sin and separated it from us as far as the east is from the west. Right? He remembers it no more. He's cleansed our conscience uh, of our guilt that we, we inherited and that we, of course, bring upon ourselves. He's given us unlimited access to Himself and the throne of grace. And we need to live in light of that every day. Third, the high priest would enter into the most holy place with blood for his own sin and for the unintentional sins of the people. And if you remember, there was no sacrifice for intentional sins, or they were called high-handed sins. Fortunately, for you and me, Christ's sacrifice paid for all our sin. Intentional, unintentional, known, unknown. 
There is no sin so small that is not in need of the forgiveness of God, but there's also no sin so big that can't be forgiven by the eternal, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And so our access to God is unlimited because there is no sin that can bar us from Him if we look to Christ in faith. Not one. And the beauty is that we can come boldly and approach the throne of grace in spite of our sin. Hear the call to repent and turn away from your sin and to turn to Christ. And the promise is, 1 John, and if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He's a God who keeps His promise. What a mighty, gracious, merciful, loving, and faithful God we serve. Let's pray together.